0: shall see. And from Romans 10:5 through 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Of course, the beautiful feet of preachers is a metaphor. Understand. <laughs> Our text this morning is from John's Gospel. We have been looking in this Easter tide uh, at a series of resurrection passages. It's easy for us to celebrate Easter and then just go our way and wait another year to talk about the resurrection. But the three moves crucial to our salvation are the three great Christian festivals. If Christ had not come into the world, if God had not joined himself to humanity, uh, we would be without hope. So we celebrate that at Christmas and prepare for the celebration through Advent. But if, if Christ had only come into the world, I sometimes hear people say, it's just so tragic that he wasn't received and, and that he was put to death. Good grief, that's why he came. Uh, he came in order to give himself in our place as the representative, perfect Israelite and perfect human being. That's why he came. Uh, if he had simply come, and not died and not risen from the dead, once again, we would have a perfect example of a human life which couldn't do anything but depress us because it wouldn't help us be any better than we are. So Christ entered death and kicked its doors down from the inside and broke the power of everything that would separate us from God. But still, if he did that, how would it come to us? And that's why we go on and celebrate Pentecost. And Eastertide moves toward Pentecost. This year, it will be on Memorial Day weekend. In fact, it often falls Memorial Day weekend, which is why so many Christians don't think about it because a lot of people are gone at that point. School's ended, you're taking off. But that's the third great celebration when God comes and makes his home in us. So, we see a precursor to that in our gospel text. I'm reading John 20, beginning with verse 19, just five verses that we're going to look at. On the evening of that day, and that day is the day of resurrection, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and when, whenever John says the Jews, he was Jewish, The disciples were all Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. So they they were locked in for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The gospel of Christ, thanks be to God. Five verses, five moves that I want us to note and just underscore, and then seek to understand how these can apply to us some 2,000 years removed from this event being described. The disciples, again, are shown in their true colors. The women have gone to them and said, he's risen, Uh, Peter and John have come back and confirmed that the tomb is empty and the rumor is abroad that he's been seen, and yet they're locked in Uh, for fear of the authorities. And the first thing to note is that Jesus did not send word and say, tell them when they finally have the guts to come out from behind locked doors, I'll meet them over here. Jesus came to them in the midst of their fear and unbelief, and He stood among them, which was, I'm sure, even more terrifying than… than anything that they feared from the religious authorities because uh, I can assure you, if uh, after my dear wife had died, uh, we were gathered as a family and suddenly she walked into the room and asked what was for dinner, uh, it would have been uh, disorienting to say the least, terrifying It's probably more like it. But Jesus came into the midst of them. And he always does, and so the question that I'm deferring for a few minutes till we get later in this text is, how does he do that now? Now that he has ascended, now that he is enthroned, how does he come to us in the broken, fearful places of our lives and stand in the midst of his people? Hold that in abeyance. The second move that he makes is, and the English can never capture it, He says, peace be with you. Uh, He says it actually twice in this text. And the New Testament Greek also can't capture it. The arene word, it's a little bigger than our word peace. But nothing can encompass the word that Jesus would have said, which was shalom. If you've been to Israel When you walk in a room, people greet you with shalom. When you leave, shalom. When you're going on a journey, shalom. Because shalom is the all-encompassing picture of being at peace with God, rightly related to the God who made you. At peace with the people around you. At peace with the creation itself, this created order that is suffering the result of our rebellion against God. Shalom encompasses health and wholeness and all of the dreams, all of the hopes. So ordinarily, when we say shalom to each other, it is a wish, it is a hope, it's a prayer for each other. When Jesus says shalom to us, he's announcing it. He's declaring that peace has come, that he is our peace. How can that be? How can broken sinners in rebellion against God, folk like me and maybe like you as well, how can we hope to hear that word of peace as a word for us, shalom, wholeness, health, joy, all the good things of life? The third move that he makes, he shows them his scars. He reminds them what he did in order to be our peace. a Little bit further, Thomas isn't with them at this point, and so when they tell Thomas the Lord has risen, we've met with him, Thomas says, I don't believe and I won't believe unless I can put my finger in his wounds and know that it's really the Lord. And when, when the Lord appears to him and shows him his wounds, Thomas doesn't need to touch But how does Christ come among us and show his wounds now? Hold that in abeyance. The next two moves bring us to what's really the application and how all of this comes to us all these centuries removed from this event. Jesus says, as the father sent me even so i am sending you the gospel is from beginning to end a mission doctrine if someone ever says to you can you just summarize for me what what is the great theme of the bible my answer is always the theme is God on Mission. Now, I know that Karl Barth significantly one-upped that. Karl Barth was considered by many the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and he certainly had written these huge tomes uh, on uh, church dogmatics, never finished them. They just went on and on, and brilliant mind. But when he came to the States, uh, and was lecturing, it was back in the 50s when people still cared what theologians had to say. And um, so he was speaking, I believe at University of Chicago and one of the students just said, Dr. Barth, all these tomes you've written more than I could ever read. Can you just summarize for us what it is that you've written? And the great theologian said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now that's at the heart of it. It is God on mission and he redeemed us at such a great cost. And yet for many of us growing up in Christian homes and in Bible teaching churches, there was for many years in American evangelicalism a teaching that simply did not comprehend and grasp and declare the glory and fullness of this mission, because people were taught basically that, yes, life is hard and and difficult, but for the Christian, at the end of the day, you get to leave all this behind and get to go to heaven. And so, you know, now your sins are forgiven, and then you'll be with the Lord in heaven forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. That in fact is what Plato and the Greek philosophers taught, and it worked its way into the church. What the Bible teaches is that those who've gone before us into the presence of the Lord are waiting for the consummation of history when God makes all things new. God will not let this cosmos that He created. Be undone by our sin. He will not let these bodies of ours simply be reduced to ash, whether quickly or slowly through the grinding of time. He will not let his good creation simply perish because God made all this and looked at it and said, It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. God delights in this glorious cosmos. And Christ came to redeem not just us, but the cosmos, that verse that Bart quoted, for God so loved the world. The word that John used in John 3.16 that's translated the world is the Greek word cosmos. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. That's what he's entrusted to us. It's not about just going to camp meeting, getting saved, and now I can make it. I'll walk sometimes, I'll fall sometimes, but I've got my head down because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. No. Our destiny is when, read Revelation, the final chapters, it's when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and God makes his home with us in the new heaven and the new earth. And we get our bodies back. Now, I hope mine's going to be significantly improved. I hope at least to get a full head of hair back. But uh, I remember when I was young and Tom Selleck was the big thing. A couple times I said, you know, I hope at least to look like Tom Selleck in the age to come until one of our ladies came up to me and said, we used to have pastors who wanted to be like Jesus. You're the first one. That ended that. But the point is, this is our destiny. And are those whom we love who are in the Lord now in heaven? Yes, the Bible teaches that. But it teaches that they are awaiting the consummation of history. We even see the martyrs crying out from beneath the throne, how long, how long until you bring all of this to an end and make all things new, wipe away tears? That's our destiny. And that's what he entrusted to us. As the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. So how are people to meet him and see his scars? How many of you have heard of Amy Carmichael? Uh, When I was young, most of us knew who she was. She was a great mission lady who went to India with a passionate love for the people in South India and ended up rescuing many of the young girls who'd been sold by their families into basically temple prostitution and started Donover, which still today thrives and is under, totally under uh, Indian leadership. And she suffered terrible physical problems and ended up uh, in bed for the last years of her life in great pain, unable to move. And when someone asked her about it, she wrote one of her most haunting poems called No Scar. And this is just the final stanza. No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who hath no wound nor scar? Now, that can be twisted quickly into a masochistic view. What she is acknowledging is that if you live long enough, stuff is going to happen. If your life right now is everything that you ever hoped and dreamed that it would be, I am so grateful. And I would tell you, grasp hold of it, love it, thank God for it, enjoy it, because tomorrow is coming for all of us. And it's not because life is hard, but one day we won't have to put up with the hardness of life. It is because God is preparing us and others and this cosmos for glory. And this is how he gets the glory. He doesn't do it in spite of the hurts and pains and failures of his people. He does it through the hurts and pains and failures of his people. There are many of us in this room right now who are brokenhearted for things going on with members of our families or dear friends, and we're we're longing for God to hear our prayers and to answer the way that we want him to, but I will tell you, at the end of the day, we will see that every time he said no to our prayers, In the end, it will be shown that it was because there was greater glory that he brought through that no than through the yes that we wanted. That's why Paul could say, all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are the call to court. That wasn't a smiley face. He wasn't saying, if you just have things right with the Lord, hard things aren't going to happen. No, he's saying, God is going to take everything in your life even the things that made you cry out god where are you are you not there and he is going to use that for his glory in your life in the lives of others when we used to uh when i was a boy in in the church where my dad was pastor whenever we commissioned missionaries and we used to every year have some of our best and brightest being commissioned to go out to Global Mission. We would always sing Margaret Clarkson's song, So Send I You. And always I'd known, even as a kid, uh, I'm going to, you know, hope my friends don't see me because I'm going to start crying. But um, this is the original version that we used to sing. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. And every verse just gets darker and sadder. That's how we send them out. Now, often, hard things happen. They do eventually to all of us. But Margaret Clarkson lived a few more years, and realized that she'd missed the glory in it. And she rewrote that song to say this, instead of so send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, she wrote, so send I you by grace made strong to triumph, or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear. And in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. That's how to face the brokenness of life within the resurrection victory of Jesus Christ. And when our hearts are broken, to hold fast to the the recognition that at the end of the day, the Lord of life himself, who bore our sins, and even for eternity will bear the scars of what he did for us, that he will wipe away our tears. That's his promise to us. But you still may say, okay, we've got this glorious example, this beautiful picture, but I know myself. I can make all the resolutions I want. I'm not up to this. The final move that Jesus made, he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just give us his mission, he gives us himself. He says, I will come and live in you and through you. And in knowing you, people at the broken points of their lives, when your eyes are opened by grace to see and to say, I will go. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending me. I'd rather do something else today, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to go stand in the midst of them, and I'm going to speak shalom to them, and I'm going to remind them of the Savior's scars and how much He loves them. We're the body of Christ, I keep saying this every Sunday, but, um, you know, the, the great danger t- i've said it to you before the danger with the way that we divide our churches up is that too often spiritually our churches look like warehouses of body parts because all the all the mouths want to be together all the eyes want to be together all the ears we like to the principle of homogeneity we all want to be together with people like us which is not the church the church is this glorious diversity of different gifts and different people with different hopes and dreams. That's why I was pushed back against churches getting politicized. When I first went to Cedar Springs back in 1990, I said to them, can a Democrat get saved in this church? <laughs> we want all different kinds of people because that's what the body of Christ looks like. It's what it is. We come to this table, and and the Lord says, feast on me and grow strong in me so that you can go out and live my life and be my people in the midst of a broken world. That's why we do this. What's this about? It is the promise of the Lord that in this place, he's going to make creation do what it was always meant to do, what it did do before the fall. It didn't just display God's glory, everything mediated His presence. And here, in the mystery of His grace, He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood and show forth my death until I come. So I invite you to come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little, you long to love Him more. Come because He loves you and gave Himself for you. Our Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given